Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and this episode's guest is Felina Hewerts. In the past couple of years for a summer special at The Well, We've had the opportunity to share excerpts from a book from InterVarsity Press and conclude with an author interview. Last summer for our summer special and the first podcast I ever hosted, I had the opportunity to interview Kathy Kong about her book, Raise Your Voice. To prepare for that episode, I read her book sitting in the lobby of a dance studio while my seven-year-old daughter was in her tap dance lesson. The sound of children tapping their hearts out on the wood dance floor. This summer, fittingly, I read Felina's book, Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation, while my daughter took ballet lessons, much calmer and quieter than tap, quiet enough even to listen to Felina's book in my earbuds while sitting in the lobby. So to conclude our summer special at the well, Felina has offered her time, and then this episode invites us to consider contemplative practices to connect with Jesus. In addition to being an author of two books, Felina is a founding partner of Gravity, a center for contemplative activism in Omaha, Nebraska, and for nearly 20 years, she and her husband, Chris, co-directed an international nonprofit in more than 70 countries, building community among victims of human trafficking, survivors of HIV and AIDS, abandoned children, and child soldiers and war brides. So without further ado... Here is Felina Hewerts about her book, Mindful Silence. Thank you so much, Felina, for being our guest on the podcast today. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing about your educational background and how that has influenced who you are today? Sure. So I did my undergrad at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, a Christian liberal arts institution and I studied education and in my um, graduate work I studied Christian spirituality so I got my master's in Christian spirituality my certificate in spiritual direction at Creighton University a Jesuit university here in Omaha. Okay thank you Mm -hmm. and in the book you describe yourself as quote-unquote growing up in the Protestant pews of Indiana and now you identify as a contemplative activist. Can you share a little bit more about your spiritual background and what you mean now by contemplative activism? Sure. So I, you know, I grew up in the Protestant church. My father was a pastor. Growing up in Indianapolis, we attended church at least three times a a week. And, and that was very formative for me. I was steeped in the scriptures and I was trained in, in prayer, conversational prayer, and took my relationship with God very seriously. As the years unfolded, I had experience really in all the different streams of Christianity. I, I think from a very young age, I was interested in truth and seeking you know, real relationship with God. And so I was drawn to a number of different Christian expressions of the faith. And all of that was informative and I and, and helped shape um, me and, and who I've become today. I, I think it was my, my work in social justice around the world, working with survivors of trafficking and children of war. I did that work for nearly 20 years. And I, I think, mm. you know, those years were incredibly formative for the first nearly 20 years of my adult life. 
And it was those experiences, I think, that really challenged my faith, my spirituality. And, and I write in the book about, you know, a particular point in time where I kind of came to the end of myself, the limits of myself, and, and really the limits of my spirituality in terms of who I understood myself to be and who I understood God to be in a world of horrific and injustice and suffering and human brutality. And so all of that really began to shake things up for me and, and cause me to question the relevancy of my faith in a hurting world. And it was at, at that time in my life where I began to ask really deep questions and found myself comparing really to the likes of someone like Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity, who I was deeply influenced by in my early social justice work. And I, I realized that she and the sisters, it's just nearly unheard of that any of them burn out or mm-hmm. come to the end of themselves like I was experiencing. And as I investigated that more, I noted that they have these spiritual disciplines that they are devoted to and they pray five times a day and they have these weekly, monthly and yearly rhythms of, of rest and retreat. And I, you know, I couldn't help but just stop and pause and consider, you know, what would it be like if I had adopted similar spiritual practices that could really sustain my presence and my work in the world? And thus began this exploration really around the the connection between contemplation and action. So contemplation being something a bit different from what I had understood from prayer up to that point. Mm. And so how to really integrate contemplation with action became, I think, central kind of core focal point for my life. Maybe I should say a little bit more about what I mean by contemplative activism. Would that be helpful? Yeah. So Mother Teresa in particular was so helpful for me. And I don't remember her ever putting those terms together, but that's what I saw her embody was this integration of contemplation and action. And so what I mean by contemplation is really practices that help expose my unconscious motivations, what's driving me into service and action in the world. And and by this, really grappling with Jesus's invitation to, um, in the scriptures, we in English, we, we read it as repent. But this comes from the word, um, the Greek word metanoia, which is literally about changing your mind and changing the way that you live. Mm-hmm. And, and so this idea of contemplation that brings me to a place of really renewing the mind, as the Apostle Paul writes and teaches about, is what I mean by contemplation. And when we can integrate practices that help really renew the mind and bring um, to consciousness what was otherwise unconscious, these drives that are motivating us for service and action in the world, then all of that gets more and more purified so that my service and my action in life is more aligned with the divine will. And when we experience that kind of alignment, there's really little room for for burning out or coming to the limits of ourself because ourself is is found more and more 
united in in God and has this flow of energy that we don't otherwise experience. And I, I think this really points to Jesus's teaching on on how we can live in a way that our our yoke is easy and our burden is light. Hmm. And so this is what informed me in those early adult years around how to really develop a spirituality that is formed around this contemplative activism. Yeah, great. Thanks. That helps clarify sort of what you mean by that. And then also I appreciate the sort of looking at the motivation behind why we serve or why we are active in the faith and serving the poor or marginalized or whatever it is that God has called us to. And the word divine will, I appreciate that too. Just thinking about how that we're serving for Christ and yet not doing it out of our own strength or our own energy because mm-hmm. that'll eventually, like you said, burn out, you'll run dry. Mm-hmm. So then with that, uh, you recently wrote a book, but it came out, I think last fall. What led you to writing Mindful Silence? Yeah, so I had published a book called Pilgrimage of a Soul, Contemplative Spirituality for the Active Life earlier. And that book was like a theological narrative, spiritual memoir. And it was really coming out of this crisis of faith that I experienced as a turning point that began this examination around spirituality and the integration of contemplation and action. And as I was getting feedback from the readers of that book, folks seemed to really identify with it, but then found themselves asking like, this contemplative spirituality that you write about, it sounds amazing, but why have I not heard about this in the church? You know, why have I, why did I, I grew up in the church and no one ever taught me this. Where does this come from? And so that really was the motivation to writing Mindful Silence, to developing a book that would address various individuals who may be quite familiar with Christianity, but not familiar with the contemplative stream of Christianity. And so I wanted to present a work that would help people locate contemplative spirituality within the context of the Christian tradition. Yeah. And would you say too, when you say Christian tradition or even like who your target audience would be for the book, maybe more like Protestant or evangelical, do you think? Yeah, for sure. My first book was marketed to evangelicals and publishing with InterVarsity Press, I know makes a connection to that market as well. And I grew up evangelical. And so I think I understand how some folks are really detached from the contemplative dimension of the faith. And furthermore, how many approach contemplation with some some fear and perhaps even concern. And so I wanted, I understood that. And I wanted to create a book that would help people find their way, um, kind of hold their hand into, into this dimension of the faith. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm coming from a Catholic perspective. So, I mean, I wasn't born and raised Catholic. I became Catholic just about six years ago. And so it's interesting in my time in various Protestant churches, I would have never experienced contemplation or even, you know, the Lectio Divina. Um, well, I should say I experienced that through university, through my time as a student in university, but almost never, right, in the uh, Protestant or evangelical world. But then my time in the Catholic church has, it's everywhere, you know, so it's in some ways I'm like, oh, it's not new at all. But I can see how for many people in evangelical Christianity or Protestant that stream of Christianity, having never heard of it. So, and you make it accessible in that way to that group. 
So sort of related, I've heard a couple people think when they hear the title Mindful Silence, that your book is about mindfulness. Uh, You make mention of it several times in the book. And I recently had a conversation with someone who was very skeptical about mindfulness as sort of pop culture or pop psychology. And in my own educational background in mental health, I've had more of a clinical understanding of mindfulness as you mentioned in the book too, as an evidence-based practice to treat anxiety, addiction, and lots of other mental health concerns. Mm. Um, Since you include it in the book and mention it a few times in there, I wondered if you'd share your thoughts on mindfulness and its relationship to contemplative Christian spiritual practices. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So, you know, I like to think about mindfulness in the scope of really the science of the mind. And when you think about the various frontiers we've explored, whether that's planetary frontiers or even outer space frontiers. It's been said that the mind is the next greatest frontier for us to explore. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness is really rooted in Buddhism, but it was really crafted to be a secular practice that anyone could engage in regardless of religion or faith. And when we think about the Buddhist you know, they have really mastered practices of the mind over centuries. And and they're way ahead of us on this in terms of if we compare to Christianity, they've developed such an appreciation and understanding of the mind that science eventually here in the West took note of this and began doing various studies on mindfulness or on Buddhist practitioners in their meditation practices and began to demonstrate through science the effects on this evidence-based work around the effects of meditation and mindfulness on the mind. And what we found was that there were these incredible health benefits. And and so this, I think, really gave the Western sensibility the opportunity to take pause and notice and reflect on the value of these kinds of practices that a particular tradition has explored and maintained and practiced and sustained over time in a way that Western Christianity has not. And so as these various science practitioners and and Buddhist practitioners began to bring Buddhism and science together in these studies, then the mindfulness practice was developed to be more accessible to various people. And so mindfulness is really an exercise for the mind. It's not meant to be a spiritual kind of practice. It really is about disciplining the mind and appreciating the mind-body connection in terms of all these kinds of health, like physical health issues that we've manifested, particularly in the West, based on our modern society and technology and, and various kinds of reasons. We've developed all kinds of disease and such. And then with our mental health disorders that are really kind of off the charts in in Western society, these mindfulness practices are showing to be of great benefit for our physical health and our mental and emotional health. And so, you know, if Christians are approaching mindfulness with skepticism, I think it's critical to, to look at the science 
around these practices and to understand mindfulness as simply an exercise of the mind to contribute to overall well-being physically and emotionally. And so how does mindfulness relate to then contemplative practices in Christianity? I think there really ought to be more study and research done on this, and we're just beginning to do so. But it's pretty clear that Christianity has particular contemplative prayer practices that reap similar physical and emotional benefits as something like mindfulness. So with or without a conscious kind of intention toward relationship with God, contemplative practices and mindfulness reap very similar benefits. And I often think of this anonymous quote that is often attributed to Carl Jung that, let's see, how does it go? It's bidden or unbidden, God is present. And so I think about that when it comes to Christian contemplative practices and mindful mindfulness kind of exercise of the mind practices, like whether we invoke God or not, God is present and God is at work when we learn how to be open and receptive to the divine presence. That's helpful. I did a paper recently for my grad studies on integrating religion and spirituality, and it wasn't particularly about Christianity, but just religion and spirituality in general into treatment for survivors of sexual assault. And like you were sharing, the evidence is there that prayer or other spiritual activities can reap huge benefits for people who've undergone trauma or or gone through trauma rather. And similar to the same ways that the research scientific evidence shows that mindfulness is effective for those things as well. So it's interesting to think about the ways that Christian practices could also, more specifically Christian, can be beneficial for our minds, right? It's That's right. Of course, the Christian church can also be places that have contributed to trauma, but not specifically Christianity as much as the church, I would say. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sort of going back to the Buddhism piece that you mentioned before, and there has been some criticism of Father Richard Rohr by some Christians about the sort of distinctly Buddhist language and some of his writings on contemplative practice. How would you respond to someone, a reader who was reading through your book and was concerned about specifically about the origins of Buddhism? Sure. You know, I would say that there may be some confusion that the language that I use or Richard Rohr uses or other um, contemplative teachers in Christian use, there may be confusion that that language is Buddhist when it's, I would say it is contemplative language. And the reason we associate a lot of that language with Buddhism is because Buddhism has done such a good job of maintaining the contemplative dimension of that tradition. And Buddhism has had a huge influence on the United States in particular and Western society in really elevating the conversation around the contemplative dimension of life and in the ways that modern Christianity has neglected the contemplative tradition, Buddhism has maintained that, sustained that, and brought that really to the forefront and into our awareness. And so we may come across particular language that is is really just contemplative, but we associate it with Buddhism because 
that's all we sort of know of the contemplative dimension. But all great religions have a contemplative dimension to the faith, and we are in a, a time of extraordinary renewal of the contemplative dimension of, of Christianity. And so this is a time of great exploration for the contemplative wisdom within uh, the Christian faith. And so if people are reading and coming across this language that feels like or sounds like Buddhism, I think it's just important for the reader to consider that this is a rich, deep well of contemplative language and a contemplative dimension of the faith to be examined and explored. Okay. Thanks for sort of adding some clarifications to that. So totally shifting gears then, you share in the book and you shared a little bit earlier in this interview about your felt connection that you've had with Mother Teresa and then also with St. Claire of Assisi and especially like feeling as though you encountered Jesus in meeting Mother Teresa. And I was particularly struck by this story as I've had similar experiences where I felt deeply connected to Jesus through the image of God and others and even through my connection with the saints, in particular, St. Therese of Lisieux is one of my favorite saints. And I'm curious if you've had other experiences where you've really encountered the person of Jesus in your neighbor or in a saint, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. For sure. The older I get, the more I experience Jesus through other people more than in some kind of mystical way. And so there have been many, and I would say, you know, the ones that really come to mind are actually people who aren't Christian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I find this fascinating and wonderful. And uh, in some recent studies I've been doing, exploring the non-boundaried nature of God and looking at various parables of Jesus and various teachings of Jesus where he's often breaking down these barriers that we try to put up to determine, you know, who's in, who's out, who's the chosen, who's not, who's the family of God, who's not. And what I'm finding is that there's this great human family that Jesus came to help us understand our unity, our connection to one another. And that great prayer that he prayed, praying that we would be one as he and the father are one. This desire that we would be unified and and one is so great. And it's in the lives of um, one of my dearest mothers. Um, It's hard to to be brief here, but in my early work around the world, I I was discerning that call and, and I was really having a hard time imagining leaving my family. I was very close to my family. And I came across this particular teaching of Jesus where he said, you know, whoever leaves mother, father, sisters, or brothers fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. And so I really took comfort in that promise and followed this call to be of service around the world. And truly I received all kinds of mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers all around the world uh, that I would have otherwise not known or be connected to. And one such mother was dear Muslim woman in Chennai, South India, who took me in as her own. She didn't have any daughters. She had a few sons and and we developed such a a dear connection. And it was through her uh, hospitality, her generosity, her humility, her faith, where I encountered, you know, the living Christ. And the same can be said for 
a Syrian refugee woman here in Omaha, Nebraska, who's just been here a couple of years. She escaped Syria with her children. Her husband was the human rights watch attorney who was documenting human rights abuses in Syria and their lives were severely threatened and they fled to Turkey and her husband went back to continue the work and that was about seven years ago. He's never been heard of since Hmm. and um, it's pretty clear that he was taken by ISIS. They'd been threatening him and his family for some time. So my friend and her, her son and her three daughters and her eldest daughter's little boy finally made it to the States. And she said they hadn't slept, you know, a night through um, for years until they got to the U.S. I mean, they were terrified for their lives. And, and, and she has become another dear, dear friend, like a mother or an older sister who has demonstrated such incredible hospitality and generosity and compassion and faith. And Um, And really puts a lot of my Christian friends to shame in terms of the fruit of the spirit that is so evident in her life that is not as evident in other people's lives. And so I take a lot of hope in finding God in all kinds of places and in particularly the places where we least perhaps expect to find him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing those stories. So a few more questions. As a Protestant with significant experience practicing historically Catholic spiritual disciplines, how has your experience of these practices, as well as your connection that you mentioned before to several saints, how has that shaped your thoughts and feelings on unity in the church? Well, I'm deeply saddened by the divisions in the church. It's it's really sad to me, especially when we examine the life of Jesus and his teachings and see unity is what he was all about and that helping us to be able to see one another as brother and sister was so much a part of what he was about that we have created just continued to create and recreate these kinds of divisions that he was confronting in his time is really really sad and and this is where contemplative practice really comes in because through contemplative prayer, we are able to access a renewal of the mind that Jesus taught and the Apostle Paul taught. And that renewing of the mind begins to reveal these unconscious drives and motivations that are causing us to create such divisions. And when we can begin to see that, we can confront it in ourselves We can allow that to be healed and put more into alignment with the divine will. And that leads to the possibility of, for example, finding Jesus in my Muslim friends, you know? So contemplative practice has deeply informed how I understand unity and union and not just union in the church, but really union for the the whole family. Yeah, that makes sense. So then related to hearing from Jesus through contemplative practice, many of our listeners are women in academia and some with full-time work in academia while simultaneously raising a family or being in community and having sort of really full schedules, right? Many of the practices of St. Ignatius were designed for a very different context, like vocational ministry or celibate life, uh, living in community with other single priests who were also engaging in those same practices throughout the day. What suggestions would you have for incorporating these contemplative practices, particularly for women in academia who find themselves just with loaded schedules? Yeah, you know, this is such an important question. And 
And a lot of the spiritual practices that we receive from the Christian tradition do come from that monastic context where one might be celibate and living in community and living a whole other kind of ordered way of life than modern people are today. And so we do have this opportunity to, I think it was Aquinas who actually said the term like that there are these three basic vocations, the contemplative vocation, which would be like joining an order, the monastic way of life, the active life, which would be more of like a, a formalized diocesan kind of priest life. And then he said that the third vocation is the mixed life. It's a combination of contemplation and action. And I think this is the opportunity that we have today to begin to imagine what it might be like to live this mixed life. And so I think we have to begin with what we value. And we've inherited a very um, masculine driven and masculine, not to be critical of the masculine, but it's just, it's limited. It is only one dimension, right? And so this masculine drive to accomplish, to produce, to be successful, perhaps that energy has created a modern Western society that is spinning out of control, not because masculine is that masculine energy is somehow inherently bad. No, it is just, like I said, it's just limited and it's just one piece of the whole. And the contemplative dimension of the faith is particularly feminine in its energy and its quality. And and I think this is an exciting consideration for us to explore because in the 21st century, we're seeing a rise of feminine energy, perhaps to a degree that we've never seen before. And I think this is a time of, of bringing balance to, to the masculine and feminine dimension of life and creating a new way of being and living in the world. And so that's a huge vision to consider and to explore and how not only how do we find a few minutes a day for meditation, for example, but how do we really subvert and alter and reimagine the whole way in which we're living and doing life? And I think contemplation gives us a great opportunity to to explore and imagine what that might look like. But to begin, we have to examine what is it that we value? And do we value this need for a renewed mind, a renewed way of living, this metanoia where we're, we're not yoked and burdened with something that's so heavy, but we're actually flowing with the gift of life, uh, much like a river would would flow. And if we value that, then how might we live into that? And I would suggest that contemplative practice is then a great way to start. And it, and it begins by adopting a few moments of solitude, silence, and stillness in our day and beginning to incorporate that. And, and we even have wonderful apps now that can support this commitment. Insight Timer is a great one. Headspace, I know a lot of people like that a lot. And so if we really value this renewing of the mind and life, then I think we will find time for contemplative practice, which I think will blossom into sort of reordering and restructuring um, the very fabric of our society. Sure. And it's interesting to hear that there are even apps that you can use to incorporate that in. I'm curious, just uh, one thing you mentioned about the sort of feminine versus masculine. Are you suggesting that contemplative practice is 
more feminine than it is masculine. I'm I just to want to clarify that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's a generalized way of looking at it, but when we, when we study the history of Christianity, we can see that around the time of enlightenment, there was a, a distinct parting with the contemplative dimension of the faith into a, a more discursive, rational, intellectual approach to the faith. It, and it, it's interesting because it divides really sort of between left brain and right brain as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and left brain qualities have been uh, attributed to more masculine kinds of energy and, and the right brain um, being more intuitive and em- emotive and, and those kinds of qualities being more associated with like a feminine energy. And so it's not to say that one is more for men and one is for women, but it's more about the essence of the energy and the quality of bringing wholeness between masculine and feminine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. So one other aspect of your book that I especially appreciated was the importance of noticing what is going on with our emotions, paying attention to the emotions without judgment and how this might be really contradictory to what many people in white American sort of mainline Protestant churches grew up with where we were taught that emotional experiences were maybe not to be trusted, right? Like that faith versus feeling dichotomy. You also share an interesting story in the book about the gift of tears. Can you share a little bit about this experience and your understanding of emotions from a faith perspective? Mm, Yeah. So this really ties into what we were just discussing before around uh, this division that occurred between the contemplative and the discursive or intellectual aspects of the faith and this division between the masculine and feminine energy. And we can see, you know, in this question, how we have inherited this disconnect from perhaps some of that feminine energy and qualities around the emotive and affective ways of relating to life and and relating to God. And many of us, I think, did grow up with that kind of experience of, oh, you can't trust your feelings. But um, Ignatius of Loyola, um, one of the greatest contemplative teachers from the 16th century, was quick to really affirm all the faculties, not just reason, but also imagination, feelings, and will. But this emphasis on feelings and the affect of our emotions, Ignatius really honored that, affirmed that, and taught us how to work with that to discover the divine will through our feelings. So, you know, it's really a horrible error to assume that the mind is somehow to be trusted, but the heart is not. The mind can often play tricks on us. And, um, and, you know, and the heart, yeah, has a complex assortment of feelings that um, we have to learn how to sift through and discern. And so, and so both are, are really important. And if we look some of the listeners may be familiar with the Enneagram and the Enneagram brings emphasis and attention around these three intelligence centers around the head the heart and the gut. And all three intelligence centers matter. And we overemphasize the head intelligence, the intellectual, rational mind to the neglect of an equal intelligence of heart and body. And so I think in our times, we we really need to be expanding and growing our understanding of that intelligence and the way in which Holy Spirit works inside the whole person, not just the mind, but also the heart and the body. 
Great. Yeah. I really appreciated that idea of integrating the heart and the mind together and not just paying attention to one or the other strongly. Mm-hmm. Well, then finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah. Yeah. But what comes to mind is the words be here now. Uh, there's a, a classic book by Ram Das uh, called that very name, uh, Be Here Now. And I often find myself referring to it because it's so difficult to be present. It's too easy to be ruminating over the past and things that have occurred in the past or worrying and fretting or planning into the future. And it's only right here, right now that life is happening. And I want to, you know, just suck the morrow out of life. Like this is where it's at. And furthermore, for spiritually minded people, only in the present can we experience God. This is where God is. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. And so constantly reminding myself, bringing myself back to the moment with three simple words, be here now, has been really helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Felina, so much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well. Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.